If you have your Bibles with you or if you have a device with you, uh, today's text is going to be from Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 and go through verse 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22 is the text for today's sermon. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have, uh, don't have anything with you. I'll give you like three more seconds to get there. Acts 4, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people... Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray one more time and ask God to impress his word on our hearts as we meet with him this morning. God, uh, as we come to you now, um, we ask that you would quiet our hearts. God, we ask that you would... um, We bring in a lot of junk with us into this church, God. We bring in a lot of distractions, frustrations, disappointments, fears, anxieties, uncertainties. And I pray, God, in these next few moments that through uh, your power, you would allow us to sit quietly at your feet, uh, to hear from you, to learn from you, uh, and to be changed by you. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. And um, as I have this opportunity, God, to uh, proclaim your word this morning, I pray that you would, um, for all intents and purposes, uh, remove me from this situation. I pray that it would be your words that are spoken, that it would be your words that are heard. Uh, We don't need the thoughts and ideas and opinions of a man who's more than 40 years old this morning. Uh, We need to hear from the living God. And so we ask that you would do that. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It was my senior year in high school, and uh, my youth group uh, was having a ski weekend. Uh, I had never been skiing, but I was like, this is a great opportunity. A lot of my friends were going, and um, like, why wouldn't I go? So sign up for the ski weekend. Uh, Didn't have any of the gear, but one of my other friends who was not going on the trip had all the gear. And so I borrowed, before we left, I borrowed from him skis, poles, gloves, uh, ski pants, whatever else you need to go skiing, loaded it up, got in the bus, went with the youth group to the, to the ski weekend. A first morning of the first day of the ski weekend, ride the, uh, the gondola, whatever it's called, the ski lift. It's not a gondola, it was a ski lift. Ride the ski lift up to the top of the mountain. Uh, the whole, pretty much the whole group is there. Again, I'm a senior, so I kind of, I know everyone. Everyone kind of knows me, kind of, kind of big man on campus. If, I mean, just a... <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Wasn't homecoming king, but should have been. And so um, you guys, you're, you're, you're getting the vibe. And uh, so there's a pretty decent sized group of us up there at the top of this, the, the mountain. And uh, we're standing there like right at the beginning of the run, uh, sitting on the precipice, looking over the edge 
of what might as well have been the Grand Canyon, just a mile straight down, right? It was a, it was a little hill outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, so it's not, we're not talking about the Rockies, but it looked like, it, it looked like a really big mountain. And uh, I was, again, like big guy, big man on campus. Well, not really big man on campus, thought I was. Uh, never skied before in my life. And if I'm just being very honest, in that moment, I was, a little, I was more than a little bit nervous. I was terrified. And I kept waiting for someone else to kind of break the ice and get going. And one of my buddies who's standing right next to me, like probably sensing that there's a little bit of anxiety in me as I'm about to, you know, I, I had just put on skis for the first time in my life 15 minutes ago. Like no lessons, no like Bunny Hill, no none of that stuff. And he, my buddy is standing here and he just looks over at me. He goes, hey man, send it. <laughs> and so I did. I pushed off and I started going down. And, and I, I carved back once or twice. And I'm telling you, within about 10 seconds of that run, I was like, I am a skiing prodigy. <laughs> I have mastered skiing in 10 seconds of my first run. And after about the 11th second of that run, while I'm still in full view of everyone from the group who's watching behind me, um, I, I go to turn again. And I think in skiing terms, it's called catching an edge. And I caught an edge, and then what, all, what happened next is also, I think, in skiing terms, called a yard sale. <laughs> so I caught the edge, and I went down, and, uh, and it looked like someone was having a yard sale because my skis went one direction, my poles went another direction, my glasses went another direction, my gloves went another direction. Uh, I smacked my face on the ice and cut my cheek, um, which I was a little bit embarrassed by, but I'm, like, for the rest of the weekend, the girls were like, it's kind of cute. And I was like, well, it's because I'm so tough. And so uh, it, actually worked out, it actually worked out just fine. Um, so there I am, just uh, have just literally taken a face, not, not, a, not a figurative, a literal face plant in front of all the people I most want to impress in the world. And they come down and they're helping me gather my stuff. And the same guy's like, man, you went full send. And I was like, you bet I did. Um, and I love skiing. Never been since, but I, I really genuinely loved, <laughs> loved, loved skiing. So um, it's kind of a funny phrase, isn't it? This, like when someone says, send it, like it's a very, I'm, a, I'm on the tail end of the millennials. It's a very like millennial, Gen Z type of phrase. Uh, it's kind of weird, like send what, where, but I also, I also kind of love it. To say send it to somebody, the, 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 the phrase send it um, means in, sl- like it literally like send a package or send an email, that's the literal, but in like the slang understanding of the phrase send it, what it means is don't hold anything back. It means, it means go all in. It means lay it all out on the table. Just go for it. Just send it. And actually, I, I, I did a little, little bit of research this week on that phrase. What's really interesting is uh, a lot of people think that that phrase actually took on its slang understanding from the 1930s jazz scene. Jazz musicians in the 1930s started telling each other to send it when they were about to give a concert. And the idea was, let the audience feel the same emotion you're feeling. Go all in, don't hold anything back, send it. I would like to do my best this morning uh, to attempt to send it again this morning. 
I would like to attempt to send it this morning without the yard sale that comes after the sending it uh, as it happened the first time. And I don't want to just try and send it myself. I want to do my best to help all of us send it this morning. We are here in January of 2024. The first three weeks of this year, we are doing a vision series here uh, across all the Midtown campuses, uh, but we're also doing it here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. I don't think I mentioned this last week, but we are calling this three-week series that we're starting the year off with uh, First Things First. And so last week, we talked a little bit about what God had put on my heart for Honestly, we talked last week about what God had put on my heart for my life for 2024, and I just was like, here's what I think we need to lean into as a church. And the theme of last week's message, we rooted it in Acts chapter 4, like we're going to do again today, was Jesus over everything. That in the midst of all that life is throwing at us, and all the... the, um, the confusion and what is the most important and what do we focus on and there's more things to do than can possibly get done. The thing that we need more than anything else is to be with Jesus because nothing will transform us like being with Jesus. Uh, And this week, I want to continue that theme, but last week was kind of vision. This week, I want to talk about mission. So I want to talk about this week. Why are we here? Like, what are, what are we doing here? Why do we gather here on Sundays and then in small groups during the week? And what is this thing called church? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And in order to talk about that, in order to talk about what, uh, what I think our mission is, what, what our purpose is, why we are here together as a group of people, uh, I want to preach from the theme this morning, you are sent. The, the, the main idea, the big idea, like if you hear nothing else from the rest of this service, uh, I want to preach today from the idea that you are sent. And we're going to do that again by looking at this amazing story that we get in Acts chapter 4. And I know we picked it up midstream, and so we just need to collectively uh, enter back into the context what is happening here in Acts chapter 4. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament we call Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four different versions of the story of Jesus' life, biographies of Jesus' life. They are the stories of what Jesus did when he was here on the earth. The book of Acts follows those up, and it is the story of what Jesus continued to do through the power of his Holy Spirit after he ascended back to the Father sometime around 33 AD. Uh, It is the story of the beginning and building of Jesus Christ's church. And so it's really instructive for us as we are sitting here in a church, though the church isn't the building, the church is the people, as we are a part of Jesus Christ's church this morning, what Acts tells us is really instructive for how we understand what we are doing here. So uh, Jesus has ascended to the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit, which descends on his followers, his disciples. It looks like flames of fire, as we said last week. So they were both literally and figuratively set on fire for Jesus Christ and his mission. And then uh, they begin to go back into the world that they had been a part of. So as we come to Acts chapter three, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, are going up to the temple. And as they come to the temple, there's a disabled man. He's been disabled for, as the text tells us, over 40 years. He's begging at the, at the gate of the temple. And as Peter and John go by, he looks up at them and he's wanting money or some kind of handout. And Peter says to him, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And that guy who had been disabled for 40 years stands up and walks. 
And, uh, and he goes with Peter and John into the temple and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And because the people in the temple know who this guy was, they knew how long he had been there, a crowd forms because uh, you would be amazed too if someone who you had known for your whole life had been unable to stand up and walk was here walking and leaping. And Peter takes advantage of that opportunity and begins to preach a message about what has happened to this guy. How has he been healed? And he begins talking about Jesus. Crowd forms, the, the leaders of the temple, the chief priests, the Sadducees, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people understand that there's a commotion going on. They're not happy about that. They, they go to, to find out what's going on. They remove Peter and John. They arrest them. This is what we talked about last week. They put them down in front of them. Uh, Peter like, they preaches this amazing message to the Sanhedrin. They're the most powerful men in his society. And the theme of that message was the theme of last week's sermon. It is simply Jesus is over everything. That's what's going on here. And then that is where we pick up, Acts, that's where we pick up chapter four, the, the verses that I just read, verses 13 through 22. I want us to draw out three things this morning as it relates to our mission here, what we're doing here uh, as we look at these 11 or nine or 10 verses in Acts chapter four. And the first one is this. It is really tempting to face in. It is really tempting to face in. So what do I mean by that? So here are Peter and John. They're in front of, again, what's called the Sanhedrin. These are the chief priests. The, uh, Israel was not a sovereign nation by this time. They were under Roman occupation. And so this wasn't the government of Israel, but this was the, most the body of the most powerful men in Israel. They were the religious leaders, the political leaders, uh, the social leaders. This is the same group that less than two months ago condemned their rabbi Jesus to death. And he died because of their condemnation. And here are Peter and John in front of them. And what do they tell Peter and John after uh, Peter has told them it's in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed? Uh, they go into a little executive session. The Sanhedrin does. They ask Peter and John to leave. And they talk about what should we do about these men. Pick me up in verse 16. They say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What does the Sanhedrin tell Peter and John about them talking about Jesus? Uh, they tell them, if I can summarize it in one phrase, this is a phrase that is not allowed to be used in my house, but sometimes you can say things in church you're not allowed to say at home. They say, shut up. They say, they, say, they say, shut up. You need to stop talking about this person. You need to stop talking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Uh, with all of the social, um, political, governmental authority that is behind who we are and our power, we are commanding you, shut up. Stop talking about this guy named Jesus. And so do you know what I think I probably would have done if I were Peter and John in that moment? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Sorry, sir. Sorry, for, sorry to bother you, sir. This won't happen again, sir. I think I would have been like, hey, uh, I'm not sure this is going to work out. This is going to be really costly for us if we continue to defy these guys' orders. And if we continue to talk about Jesus, who we've just spent three, three years with, our lives have been transformed by him, it is going to hurt if we continue to disobey them and, and talk about Jesus. So I think maybe we should change our strategy. I think I, I might have gone back to my friends and my family and the people who I knew were also interested in following Jesus. And I think I might have been like, hey, um, 
it's gonna get really rough for us in this town if we are really vocal and obvious about this guy, Jesus. And um, maybe we should just go out to the country, get, get out where it's quiet, and let's just circle the wagons. And for those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus, we can form a little community out there and probably these people will leave us alone um, because it's gonna, it's gonna cost us something and it's probably gonna cost us a lot. They just killed Jesus. It's probably gonna cost us a lot if we continue to speak in the name of Jesus. It would have been really tempting for me to just face in, just circle the wagons and just be quiet. And I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that challenging for us to build a bridge from first century Palestine to 21st century Nashville. Because we still live in a world and a culture and a society that says, don't say that guy's name. When it comes to Jesus, shut up. Like, we can talk about all other kinds of things. We can talk about all other kinds of people, but there is, there is nothing that elicits more um, visceral responses and more awkwardness than if we are to speak the name of Jesus. I mean, like, if you, if you try it this summer at the neighborhood barbecue, when everyone's hanging out, talking about whatever Titans coach was hired, whatever, it just if you start talking, hey, can I... Can I talk to you about a guy named Jesus? You're probably not going to get invited back to the next barbecue, which, which might be a win, but <laughs> whatever. Uh, like, if you want to sit by yourself at your kids' sporting events, <laughs> just start asking the other parents what they think about Jesus, right? If you want to sit by yourself at lunch at your school, start asking people what they think about Jesus or or you know, even more awkward, tell them what you think about Jesus. There is, there is no name that elicits a more visceral response than for, for the name of Jesus to be spoken. It's like, you, it's part of why I believe, it's one of many reasons, I believe Christianity is true. Because you can talk about Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and whoever else all day long, but when you speak the name of Jesus, it, the, there's power. Something happens in that name. And we live in a world, even here in the buckle of the Bible belt, Nashville, Tennessee, it is uncomfortable. It is awkward. And the message either implicitly or explicitly that the world sends to those who are followers of Jesus Christ is basically shut up. Don't, don't speak that name. And that makes it really tempting when we are a body who is uh, collectively following after Jesus Christ. It makes it really tempting to do what? Hey, this is going to be costly. Let's just circle the wagons. Let's just face in. Let's just talk about it amongst ourselves. Um, I, I never played football. That would not have gone well for me. See my skiing, you know, see, see skiing as exhibit, evidence A. Uh, but I really enjoy the game of football. I feel a whole lot of confusion when I watch it, watching these guys destroy their bodies for my entertainment. Um, I also feel a ton of confusion as a, a Clevelander watching what happened yesterday. <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, there's something that happens in the game of football. So I've never played it, but I have a pretty decent understanding, I think, of how the game works. Um, and before, before almost every play, both teams that are out on the field, they separate across what's called the line of scrimmage, and they do something before the play called the huddle. And it, when they get in the huddle, this is what they do. They literally make a circle, shoulder to shoulder, arms around each other, backs out to everybody. 
They talk about what they're going to do, what play they're going to run. But here's the deal. They don't stay in the huddle. At some point, before the play clock runs out, they all clap their hands in unison and they have some rah-rah thing that they might say together. And then they stand up straight and they break the huddle and they face out and they walk up to the line of scrimmage and they run the play. Here's the thing about the huddle. It is really comfortable. It is safe. Nobody's trying to hit you in the huddle. No one's trying to take you out at the knees in the huddle. Everybody in the huddle is on your team. For the most part, they probably like you. I mean, maybe not totally, but they're going to pretend that they do in the huddle. When you break the huddle and walk up to the line of scrimmage and actually run the play, that's when all hell breaks loose. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that in church. That's when it, that's when it gets really hard because now people are trying to take you out at the knees and they're trying to hit you and take the ball away and trying to put you on the ground and they don't like you and they don't, they're, they're not going to speak kind things to you. Uh, I, I want to say this with as much kindness and graciousness as I can because I think a lot of times we get confused about it. This is not the game. This is the huddle. And there are good things that happen in the huddle. It is necessary. And you can't play a game without having a huddle. There are, there are a lot of really good things. We need a huddle. But may we never be confused about where the game is actually played. This is not the game. This is the place that is, for the most part, safe and comfortable and everyone will pretend they like us. The game is outside of these four walls. But it's hard to go out there and it's scary to go out there and it's sometimes confusing to go out there. But this, nobody goes to a football game to watch the huddle. They go to play, the, they, don't, they go to watch the game be played. This is the huddle. This is not the game. And that leads me to the second thing I want us to take out of this passage and it is this, the church faces out. It is very tempting to face in. But the next thing that I think we see as we work through these verses is that the church of Jesus Christ, his followers, they don't face in, they face out. So the Sanhedrin brings Peter and John in and they're like, you shut up about that name. Don't talk about it anymore. We don't want to hear any more about Jesus. And look at what Peter and John say. Pick me up in verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. How do they respond to the Sanhedrin when the Sanhedrin's like, you need to stop talking in that name? They are like, uh, you don't even know what you are asking us to do. We have seen and heard things that it would be impossible for us not to talk about. We cannot keep it in. I just imagine Peter and John being like, bro, appreciate your thoughts but that's not gonna happen because we have seen storms calmed by a single word. We have seen water turned into wine. We have seen people literally possessed by evil spirits. We have seen crazy people sitting fully clothed and in their right mind. Peter's like, I walked on water. We have seen Moses and Elijah. We have heard God's voice speak out loud. We saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. We have seen the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. We have seen lepers healed. We have seen the deaf hear. We have seen the poor have good news preached to them. We have seen the dead raised to new life. 
I appreciate your thoughts, but we have seen and heard things that it would be impossible for us not to talk about. So whether it's right in God's eyes to obey you or to obey him, you can decide that. We cannot help speak of what we have seen and heard. We have to go out. We have to face out. He's like, we got to send it. The church faces out. Uh, I'm reminded of one of the great scenes in one of the great movies of all time when um, the gifted sword fighter, Inigo Montoya, has finally faced the man who he has uh, waited literally his whole life to face. Is it the six-fingered man? And, and Inigo has taken a few blows and he starts, he opens his mouth and, and, and what does he say to the six-fingered man, the line that he has rehearsed his whole life? I'm not going to do it in his accent. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. We don't advocate violence or murder here in this church. But the guy starts talking back to him and he's looking for answers from Inigo. And what does Inigo say? The same thing. I'm Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And, and the guy keeps looking for him to engage and he keeps looking for him to talk back to him. And Inigo just keeps saying the same thing over and over. And the six-fingered man eventually gets to the point where he's like, stop saying that. Stop saying that. Don't say it anymore. And Inigo Montoya doesn't say it in the movie, but the takeaway is this. He's like, I am answering to a higher power. I have a higher calling than what you, this person right in front of me, is asking me or telling me to do. I am going to speak about what I have to speak about. I'm going to keep saying over and over and over, whether you like it or not, whether you want to hear it or not, because I don't answer to you. I answer to my conscience or whatever it is that his, his higher power that he was answering to. And Peter and John are saying to these men who are standing in front of them saying, don't talk about that guy anymore. And they're like, we can't help it. And this is why we talked last week about how the most important thing is that we are with Jesus. Because what was true for Peter and John is true for you and I. When we are with Jesus, we are going to see and hear things that it would be impossible for us not to talk about. Why does the church face out? Not because we have some like political agenda or we have some ax to grind or we're here to tell the society outside of these four walls about how terrible and immoral and, and messed up they are. The church faces out because we have seen and heard things because we have been with Jesus that it would be impossible for us not to talk about because we cannot hold it inside any longer. Because if any of you have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you have a story about what he has done in your life. You have a story about what he has done in the lives of other people in this place. You have seen marriages that looked like they were on the brink of death restored. You have seen children who, who looked like they were gone come back. You have seen sicknesses and diseases and cancer healed that the doctors had no explanation for. You have seen relationships and friendships that were broken. You have seen people who could never under any other circumstance in any other place actually find something in common and be together in unity and community. You have seen things, if you have been with Jesus, that you cannot help but speak in here. And so the church of Jesus Christ, why are we here? What are we doing here? We are here not to have a holy huddle but we are here to face out. We are here to share 
the name of Jesus with a world that is literally dying to hear about him. It's not gonna make us super popular. It's, it's not gonna win us like great big awards. But it is the highest and best calling on the life of everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's tempting to face in. The church faces out. And here's the last thing. Oh, I just wanna like for a few moments talk about why. I guess I kind of just did that, but I wanna get a little bit more into it. Why, does, why are Peter and John, face, why are they doing what they are doing? Why, why, why does that 2,000 years later still matter for us as a church here at, on Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee? Well, to understand that, I think we just need a little bit more biblical context. And actually in my Bible, it's like four pages back. Before, after Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, placed in the tomb, raised back to new life, the night that he is resurrected, the gospel of John tells us that Jesus' disciples were huddled together in a locked room and Jesus came into their midst. And in John 20, 21, Jesus gives them John's version of the Great Commission. And this is what it says. Jesus is amongst his disciples the night after he is raised from the dead. And this is what he says to them. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Why are Peter and John acting in the way that they are acting? Because Jesus sent them to do it. Because Jesus showed up in the midst of his disciples the day that he was raised from the dead and he said, you have a new calling on your life. You have a new mission. He said, there is a world outside the four walls of this locked room that you all are huddling in, terrified, and I am sending you out into that world in the same way that my father sent me into your world. Now you, with the help and, and indwelling of my power and my Holy Spirit, I am sending you out to a world outside of these four walls, a world that is literally dying to hear the good news about who I am and what I have done. I am sending you to tell the world that there is a God in heaven who made them and loves them more than they could possibly imagine and that he sent me to do for them what they could not do for themselves, that they might know relationship with me again, that they might know hope and joy and peace in a way that transcends understanding. As my father has sent me, so I am sending you. As Jesus sat in that room with his disciples, the night that he was raised from the dead, he looked at his disciples, the tiny beginnings of his church, and he looked at them and he said, send it. And they went full send. And somebody needs to hear this this morning. The same call that Jesus put on the lives of his disciples 2,000 years ago is the call he puts on the life of every single person who has bowed their knee to him as Lord and Savior of their life today. Someone needs to hear this this morning. You have a calling on your life. There is a reason. There is a purpose. There is a mission for you right where you are at. Listen, you are not where you are at today. Whatever your life looks like, because of your um, achievements, because of your resume, because of your charisma, because of your gifts, because of your hard work. All of those are great things and we thank God for them. You are where you are at today because God has placed you there. You are not where you are at today because you are a failure and you have screwed up at every turn and you have made poor decisions and now look at this. You are where you are at today because God has placed you there. You live where you live 
You work where you work. You play where you play. You work out where you work out because God has a calling on your life right where you are at. And that calling is not to build your own little kingdom, to build a nice, comfortable, safe little life. I don't mean to be pejorative. Big could be a big life right where you are at. The calling on your life is that you have God's spirit. If you have bowed your knee to Jesus as Lord of your life, you have the spirit of God. You have the spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you and you take him with you wherever you go. And you are living and we are living here in this church in the midst of a community that is dying to hear the good news that there is a God in heaven who created the world and everything in it and he is not mad at them and he does not look down on them but he loves them more than they could possibly know and the longing of his heart is the longing of their heart and that is to know him and be known by him. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Jesus is standing in our midst this morning and he is looking at every one of us and he is saying to us, send it. We are here because there is a world outside of these four walls that is desperate to have what we have and may we exist to bring it to them. I wanna just go home on this. Let me check the tape. Yep, I'm still, I'm still good. Um, what does it mean that Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you? What did the Father send the Son to do? Did he send Jesus to um, condemn, uh, criticize, and shame this world full of sinners who had turned their back on God? Did he send Jesus to beat the world over their heads with a Bible until they submitted God sent his son Jesus to lay down his life for a bunch of people that hated him. Jesus looked, God looked at Jesus and he said, send it. And Jesus went full send. And so Jesus then comes to his followers and he says, as the father sent me, so I am sending you. And so does that mean that the call of Jesus, the call of Jesus on our lives and the call of Jesus on this church is that we go out into the world and we condemn the world and we criticize the world and we shame the world for not living up to the standard that we have found in God's word? Do we beat the world over their heads with the Bible until they submit? It means that he has called us to lay down our lives for a bunch of people who may not even want to hear what we have to say. I want Green Hills and Nashville to know that there is a church at 3410 Granny White Pike called Midtown Fellowship Granny White. And I do not want Green Hills and Nashville to know that there is a church here in this building because we have some amazing worship or because we got some great preaching or because we have the best kids ministry or the best youth group. They certainly are not going to know it because we have the best building with all kinds of space and all kinds of parking and it's just a really easy place to come to church. I want Green Hills in Nashville to know that there's a church here at 3410 Granny White Pike because we have been with Jesus and we are going outside of these four walls and we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. I want them to know that there's a church here at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville because we are laying down our lives for a community 
that is dying to hear that there is a hope that they cannot even comprehend, that there is a joy they cannot even comprehend, that there is a salvation that they cannot even comprehend. I want them to know that we exist because God the Father has told us to send it. And we have gone full send. Even if it means we yard sale a few times. When we have been with Jesus, we will not be able to speak. We won't be able to help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Send it, Midtown Fellowship. You are sent. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We just thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that um, for so many here in this room that you have allowed us to know you and to be loved by you and to love you. And I pray, God, um, that that would not just be kind of a, one of the buckets of our life, one of the buckets of our lives, but that it would be the all-consuming, uh, overwhelming um, one thing that marks who we are and what we do. God, may you allow us as a church to not just sit together in a holy huddle with a bunch of people who look like us and talk like us and agree with us, but may you give us um, such conviction about who you are and what you have done for us that we, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. We can't do that on our own. We need you to do it in us, through us, and for us. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.